Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at current events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now. This episode of All Things is brought to you by Crossway, publisher of the new book, Reforming Criminal Justice, A Christian Proposal by Matt Martins. Noted attorney and seminary graduate Matt Martins answers the question, does the design and operation of the American criminal justice system reflect Christian love of neighbor? Jesus told his followers that the entirety of the Old Testament's law is encapsulated in the commands to love God and to love their neighbors as themselves. In Reforming Criminal Justice, a Christian proposal, Matt Martins argues that love of neighbor must be the animating force for true reformation of the criminal justice system, obligating us to seek the best for both the criminally victimized and the criminally accused. Using his theological training, Martins reveals how scripture provides several guideposts, accuracy, due process, accountability, impartiality, and proportionality for loving our neighbors as it relates to criminal justice. Then, drawing on his near quarter century practicing criminal law, he examines how America's justice system falls short of the biblical standard. By understanding how our current system operates and considering how love of neighbor relates to issues of crime and justice, we will be better equipped to seek true Christian reform of the justice system. Pick up a copy of Reforming Criminal Justice wherever books are sold or visit crossway.org forward slash plus to get 30% off with your Crossway Plus account. Well, welcome you guys to the last episode of All Things for the 2023 year. It's been such a joy to serve you all in this way. Special thanks to this season's sponsors, Crossway, as well as Dwell. I hope you have benefited from All Things. And if you have, I would hope and ask for you to take a minute to leave a rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those ratings really do make a difference. They help people find the podcast and they give us a good reason to keep going in the new year. Year in 2024, you have no idea how encouraging it is to see those ratings and reviews pop up, to hear from listeners like you. So I would love if you would do that after you finish listening to this episode. Well, you guys are in for a treat today. I have saved one of my favorite episodes for last this season. I'm speaking for the second time with Matt Martins, who I described just a minute ago. Matt has been a fascinating follow for me online as I have learned from him over the years about the ins and outs of our criminal justice system here in the U.S. Many of the processes, which as an average citizen, I just didn't know about before, and many of the injustices, which I am honestly just sheltered from by virtue of who I am and where I was born and what family and class I was born into. But learning from Matt has been so eye-opening for me, and I want to share that with you. Before we dive into our conversation, I want to share with you some really interesting and honestly really troubling facts and data that I learned from reading Matt's book. I read his book about a month ago and I tagged probably about 40 different pages because of statistics that I found so compelling. And I want to make you aware of just a sliver of that data as well before we dive into this conversation. So let me start by telling you that the United States is the world's largest jailer, accounting for approximately 19% of the world's prison population but only 4.25% of the world's entire population. 40% of murders in the United States go unsolved. So imagine four in 10 of people who are murdered, that goes unsolved. While since the year 2000, 
1,010 men and women have been exonerated of murders for which they were convicted. So the bottom line there is that thousands of guilty criminals wander free, while more than a thousand were wrongly imprisoned. Matt says we need an examination of the machinery, not merely the product of the criminal justice system. And it's true. It would seem on behalf of both the victims of crimes and the accused, our current system really is broken. We need to improve the machinery. Matt also points out this, and I'm quoting here, the important point for the Christian in a democratic system is that because government officials exercise power that we played a role in giving them, our duty to love carries with it a moral obligation to supervise the exercise of government power that we conferred. You and I have a political relationship and thus a moral proximity to the situation. So you're going to hear Matt talk a lot about the prevalence of wrongful convictions in our conversation. A conservative estimate is that at least 1% of the United States prison population, meaning approximately 20,000 people, is incarcerated as the result of wrongful convictions. Other estimates that you'll hear Matt talk about are much higher, right around 2% of the population is there wrongfully. Now, since 1989, 3,272 men and women across the U.S. have been exonerated after being convicted and collectively serving 28,917 years in prison for crimes they did not commit. Matt says that's an annual percentage of 96 exonerations with that rate much higher as of late. So 96 people released every year who never should have been in prison in the first place. The average exoneree lost nearly nine years in prison before his or her innocence was uncovered. Many spent far longer waiting for justice to arrive. So I just want to pause here for a second and ask you to think about this with me. Nine years of lost life and freedom. These innocent individuals lost out on time, parenting their children or being married, working in a job, making money, owning a home, nine years of voting and participating in society. Instead, they were wrongly kept inside America's prison system for nine years. So think about how old you were nine years ago and how much has happened in your life since then. Matt also talks about how life on the inside of prison is violent and dangerous. Prisoners are subjected to abuse at the hands of both their guards and other prisoners. It is a difficult and often dangerous experience. So I cannot fathom being there as an innocent person. Of all exonerees um, in that given time period that I just mentioned, 1,718 were Black. Although Black men and women make up about 33% of the U.S. prison population, they comprise 52% of exonerations in the last 34 years. So as we get into the conversation, you're going to hear Matt talk about injustices within our bail and plea bargaining system, how far too often how far too often prosecutors purposefully withhold evidence and information which lead to wrongful convictions, and how many American men and women are awaiting trial in jails across the country right now because they cannot afford bail and they cannot afford to hire a defense attorney. They're awaiting the free defense, which our country promises but delivers in a painfully slow and unjust fashion. So without any further ado, let's listen in um, to what Matt Martins has to share with us. Thanks for listening. Welcome to All Things Everybody. I'm joined today by my friend and colleague, Matt Martins. So Matt, before we go any further, can you just start by giving us a quick introduction to who you are? This is your second time on All Things, but remind people who you are. 
Well, thanks so much for having me on, Jen. So I am a lawyer. I've been a lawyer for uh, more than 25 years. I have been a federal prosecutor and a criminal defense lawyer. I have a degree from Dallas Theological Seminary, and I recently wrote a book entitled Reforming Criminal Justice, A Christian Proposal, where I try to look at criminal justice from a Christian perspective. Yes. So what I have really appreciated about you, Matt, and we've had you on the show before. I follow you online. I read your book, which is right here. If people are watching YouTube, they can see the beautiful book. It's coming out. Um, actually, by the time we re- this airs, it will have just come out here in November of 2023. Um, but as you just said, which people, I want to make sure people heard you say that not only are you a lawyer, but you also have a theological degree. So you have this dual training where you have um, expertise in the law, but also a deep understanding of theology. And that's what makes um, your perspective, I think, so valuable in this book, Reforming Criminal Justice, a Christian proposal so helpful to us. Um, But Matt, the truth is most people listening, including myself, we are so insulated from the criminal justice system. I mean, we we rarely see the inner workings. Um, Can you shed some light on that? Why is that not an excuse for us to stay uninformed or uninvolved? Why do we need to care about this if we're not lawyers, if we're not involved in the justice system? Well, particularly in in a democratic republic like the United States, we all have a say in the criminal justice system. The people that engage in criminal justice, the lawyers, the police officers, the jailers, uh, the probation officers are all people acting on our behalf with the power we gave them in the last election. And so that creates a moral obligation, I believe, to restrain or empower as appropriate those who are acting on our behalf and as Christians to do that in alignment with what the Bible says about justice. In other words, Romans 13 says that the government authorities act on the authority of God. Now, that doesn't give them carte blanche to do whatever they want. Uh, they, Because they're acting on the authority of God, they have to use his authority in his ways, meaning according to his justice. And that's true whether or not they're believers or unbelievers. They may not appreciate that that's what their mandate is, but their mandate is to exercise the authority they've been given by God in alignment with God's justice. But as voters in America, like few people in the history of the world, we actually have the capacity, the power to shape that exercise of power, to hold accountable that exercise of power by the people that are in office. And as Christians, I believe we have an obligation to do that in accordance with God's justice. But that means we need to, we ourselves need to know what that is. We ourselves need to know what that is as a theological matter. What does God's justice look like in a, in a human justice system. And then we need to know factually, how does our system operate? How are those who we've empowered through elections or otherwise exercising that justice? And does it align? If it does, that's great. If it doesn't, then we need to vote in a way, um, uh, in a, in a way that encourages those who we've empowered to act in accordance with God's justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In your book, you use the phrase multiple times, you know, state sponsored physical force. (laughs) And I will say that that sort of took me by surprise because it's absolutely true, but I don't usually think of, um, the way that I vote 
impacting that, that I am, I am somehow endorsing or equipping or empowering the state then to use physical force on myself, my family, my community, because as I said in the first question, I'm so insulated, but you're right. That's exactly what it is. We state sponsored physical force and we, we bear responsibility for that. And as Christians, we bear unique responsibility for that. Um, and here, yeah, I mean, I was trying to be provocative a little bit when I used that phrase, state sponsored physical violence, you know, but that's the point is it's like trying to grab attention. But on the other hand, I'm not saying anything different than Paul says in Romans 13, right? Paul says the state bears the sword against evildoers. I mean, he's using perhaps even more colorful language than I did. He's, he's invoking the fact that what the state does is bring physically coercive force to bear on people either to get them to comply with the law or to punish them when they fail to comply. And we sanitize it to some degree, uh, but, you know, on our TV depictions of it, though it's kind of been unsanitized, unfiltered, as we've seen it on um, cell phone, smartphone videos has streamed into our living rooms in the last few years. But the reality is the state acts by physically coercive force. It's a well-recognized principle in political theory. And if you just think about it, Nobody ends up in a jail cell, either that then by a threat of force or the application of force. And you're held in that jail cell by a threat of force or the application of force. Either stay in the cell or we'll shoot you when you flee. That's the threat. Um, and it's a, a threat of physical violence. That's not meant to be critical, but descriptive so that we understand the moral seriousness of the topic we're talking about. Right. So Matt, I take it that, you know, you're, we keep coming back to these two streams, law as well as theology, but I take it that in your practice as a lawyer, you have seen the misapplication of justice. You have seen it not line up with Christian principles or biblical principles or moral principles. Um, can you give us just a peek into some of your experience that caused you to want to write this book or to study this more deeply or to broadcast your message a little bit more broadly? What, what led to that? It's interesting. I sort of describe myself as a reluctant author. I didn't. Uh, I didn't set out in life to, to write a book. I didn't have aspirations to write a book. What really prompted it was the events that caused a lot of unrest in our country around this topic. So, beginning with the events in Ferguson, Missouri, in 2014, there was. If you may, if people think back to that now, nine years ago, there was a lot of unrest in the country about what happened and what the response should be, and there were protests and NFL football games, and you know, and everywhere. And and in my church, like in our culture at large, there was a lot of discussion about this. I had good conversations with people, and one of my pastors, Isaac Adams, who's a pastor now in Birmingham, Alabama, encouraged me over dinner, as I write about in the acknowledgments uh, and tell the story to write a book about this because he knew I had both been a prosecutor, defense lawyer, and had a theology degree from seminary. And I you know, sort of brushed it off, but the conversation in our country didn't go away. Um, it continued, as I mentioned, through smartphone videos that were jarring to people, injustices that, that or seeming injustices or real injustices that we heard about and saw real time almost. And so, this sort of culminated in the summer of 2020 with George Floyd and the, the massive unrest in the country, protests, riots, violence. And so, again, a pastor friend of mine, Garrett Kell, uh, encouraged me, independent of Isaac, to, to write a book on this, saying, you know, he really thought I could be helpful. And 
So I decided to give it a try. I didn't know if anybody would be interested in what I had to say. I had sort of a conception of what I wanted to say, but I wasn't sure whether anyone would be interested in publishing it. And as it turns out, uh, someone was. So that, that's yeah. kind of how I got uh, how I got there. Um, but it was really the culmination of, I guess, 25 years of thinking about this topic and and then events that in our country that maybe ne- maybe necessitated someone speaking to the issue. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely became aware of your work and your idea. Um, I think just as you were barely starting to write the book, um, following you on Twitter, which I, I, you know, I'll I'll link your Twitter profile in the show notes so people can follow you as well. Because one thing you do really well, Matt, is you bring together um, true stories, you know, anecdotes, stories that you're aware of either in in real life or that are, um, you know, made known in headlines or in the legal community. So true stories with usually sort of alarming statistics um, where the story just exemplifies a bigger systemic Mm -hmm. issue. And then you juxtapose that with a Christian response. And I think that those three together is, is really, really effective. Yeah. I mean, just, just, I'll just give an example of that. You know, one of the things I write about the chapter in my book that jars people the most is I think it's chapter 11, where I talk about bail and plea bargaining. And when people read that, it's it tends my the reactions I get are pretty consistently people are shocked. People across the ideological spectrum, the partisan political spectrum, are sort of shocked when I describe how it works. And so, just this past week, I posted a short um, video clip on Reels uh, talking about the bail system. It's on YouTube as well. You can you can see the clip. It's like a minute long, and the comments in response to it were shocking people saying, hey, that's what happened to me. You know, one one guy wrote just last night, he said, I, I got arrested for not for having a revoked driver's license because because DMV screwed up. I had paid the ticket and I spent 82 days in jail and was assaulted by officers while I was there um, and ended up losing my job, losing my house. And it's thrown me into homelessness for the last 10 years because I was pressed to plead guilty just to get out. And, you know, those stories aren't aren't unique. Uh, his story wasn't unique. I mean, one, I posted a short video and within two days, I've got multiple people describing how this has happened to them. Um, and in some ways, those are the people I wrote the book for, To I want our fellow citizens to know the ways in which we are using physically coercive force against our fellow citizens. And I want to press the question, are we doing that in alignment with God's justice? And so, so yeah, I can, I can point to anecdotes like that. I can talk about the statistics uh, of that, which I do um, as I discuss plea bargaining. Um, and then I want us to say, how does that align with what God demands of us? Is it, are we exercising the authority in alignment with his justice? Yeah. Can you, for people like myself who are not familiar with exactly how our justice system works when it comes to bail and plea plea bargains, can you unpack that a little bit more for us? What happens? Why would somebody post bail or you know agree or confess to something that they didn't do? Just flesh that out a little bit more for those of yeah. us who are not aware. So I'll start at the at the beginning. Sort of, I'll start at the end of what you just mentioned there, which is we know as a fact people plead guilty to things they didn't do. So just quickly, the first 250 DNA exonerations after DNA became a thing in August of 1989, 16 of the first 250 DNA exonerations were people who pled guilty to crimes that we now know is a scientific fact they didn't commit. 
of the 3,385 roughly exonerations since uh, August of 1989, my I, I looked just recently, about 25% of those were people who pled guilty to crimes they didn't commit. And then we subsequently realized they didn't commit it often after they spent extended times in prison. So we know this is a, a real phenomenon. And you have to pause and ask yourself, why are people pleading guilty to crimes they didn't commit in a country where our constitution in two different places guarantees the right to trial if you're accused of a crime? And the answer is because our system is designed to coerce you out of exercising your right to a jury trial. That happens in a number of ways, but one of the ways is through the bail system. So when someone's arrested, they're brought before uh, some type of judicial officer um, and, and a bail amount is set, meaning amount of, um, an amount of money that you have to post in order to be released. And the idea behind bail is perfectly reasonable, which is we want to ensure you're going to come back for trial. And so we make you post money. And if you don't come back, you lose the money. And, and as you can imagine, the, as the more serious the crime gets, the more money you have to post because you have a greater um, likelihood of fleeing. But in, on any given day in the United States, there are roughly 500,000 people being incarcerated prior to trial, meaning they've been convicted of nothing, um, held either without bail or because they can't post the amount of bail um, that was, in, uh, was set. And these aren't people who are axe murderers or terrorists for the most part. Roughly 75% of them are people charged with traffic offenses, property crimes or minor drug charges. So we are holding hundreds of thousands of people literally today, as you and I talk, who have been convicted of nothing, um, are being incarcerated prior to being convicted. And, and most of those people are there because they can't afford to post bail and likewise can't afford a lawyer. So what's also going on is that we massively under-resource the public defender systems in our country. It's, multiple studies have shown that state after state has about one-third the lawyers necessary to provide adequate defense to the poor who are charged with crimes. So imagine how this works. You, can't, you get arrested. You can't make bail because, like most people in the United States, you don't have $10,000 laying around the house to post bail. And so you're going to be held prior to trial. It could be months before a public defender finally frees up to come see you. And when he or she comes to see you, they say, hey, good news. The prosecutor offered you a plea bargain. And if you plead guilty, you can get out today. And if you're someone who actually doesn't believe you committed the crime, you're like, but I didn't do it. And then your defense lawyer will say, well, OK, well, that's fine. You know, you can sit in jail for another six months to a year to wait for your trial. But I didn't do it. Okay, well, you'll get a chance, but you're just going to have to wait in jail for another six months to a year. Or you can admit you did it, even if you didn't, and you can get out today. And so for many people who are facing financial ruin, whose kids have been farmed out to social services, who've lost their job, who've lost their apartment, who are in hellish conditions in prison, facing the risk of sexual assault every day, the, the decision isn't a hard one. They plead guilty to things they didn't commit. And we know that happens. And, and I think that people do not appreciate that while we promise in our constitution that you won't be denied reasonable bail, and while we promise you a speedy trial, we in fact deny you both, despite what our constitution says. And we deny you both as a means to coerce people into pleading guilty.
man. I mean, it is, it is shocking, even though I've heard you say this before and I've read the stories, I've read the book by now, you say it again and I'm, I'm shocked and new because I am so incredibly insulated. Um, but you know, just even the, your recitation of these statistics and the reality is so jarring to me. Um, and so I hope that this episode and I hope that your book, you know, moves some of us to participate in, in how we, you know, provide state sponsored physical force, as you said, um, Matt, in the book, you say that the justice system we have today is the product of more than two centuries of choices. Some of those choices were noble, others were deeply nefarious. So do you find that Americans are reluctant to objectively evaluate that? Is that a a hard conversation to have? Um, Why should we talk about where our justice system came from? Um, Yeah, unpack that for us. So I, in a, I took a Christian ethics class in seminary from a professor, uh, Autumn Ridenauer, who taught the class beginning with this concept of in media ray, which is in Latin, which is Latin for in the middle of things. In other words, she says, when we think about Christian ethics, we have to recognize that we showed up, you and I showed up in the middle of things. Stuff's been going on before we before we arrived on the scene. Uh, There's a story that we were dropped into for me 51 years ago. And to understand how to think rightly about that story and what how we should act morally in it, we need to know what's been going on uh, so that we understand the story that we're now uh, actors in. And, And so that's particularly important because the criminal justice system didn't just get dropped in our lap. Uh, last year or 10 years ago or 50 years ago. It's the, it's the, it's a product of an evolution over time with decisions made to add features or take away features or modify features. And so, as I said in the book, and as you just mentioned, some of those decisions were fantastically noble. Our country, just to take one example, was founded on a commitment to the jury trial. People think of the Declaration of Independence and the Revolutionary War is prompted by disputes over tea taxes, and in part it was. But if you read the Declaration of Independence, two of the beefs that the colonists had with King George III were the lack of independent judges and the denial of the right to a jury trial. Like Our country was founded on revolutionary concepts about criminal justice, like literally revolutionary and noble concepts about that to protect people from the the abuses of the state. We wanted independent judges and jury trials. And so those are those are fantastically noble um, concepts that people gave their lives for to to found this country. But there are other less uh, less noble and indeed nefarious adjustments that were made to the, to the, to the justice system. So a number of states uh, deny or eliminated the right to unanimous juries, uh, Louisiana and Oregon until just recently, the last couple of years uh, had non-unanimous juries. And the history is not unclear as to why those states did that. It was to nullify the votes of the very few African-Americans who could make it onto juries. Uh, If you have a non-unanimous jury and a few African-Americans make it on, everyone else can ignore them and return the verdict they want. And that was, as an historical fact, um, and the Supreme Court wrote about this in an opinion by Justice Gorsuch, 
um, that was what was going on. And so, and so there's been very noble decisions made to fashion our system and some very nefarious decisions made to fashion our system. And I think to think rightly about it, we got to recognize we're in the middle of things. We dropped into a story and we should be aware of the story we're dropped into the middle of as we discuss this topic. Yeah. You unpack really helpfully in multiple different chapters throughout the book how those decisions have culminated to create a justice system that is especially um, unjust for people of color, um, for Black Americans in particular, um, as well as poor Americans. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, just especially given American history, um, how the justice system does not play out well for um, citizens who are Black. Yeah. So what I would say is I want to I want to recognize that when we're talking about being in the middle of things again, that where we are in 2023 is not where we were in 1965. Uh, much has changed. So let me just take a, a couple examples. Um, we know as a, as a statistical fact that the race of victims affects how we administer the death penalty. Now, when I say that, people say, did you mean to say victims? And yes, I meant to say victims. Uh, what I mean by that is st statistical studies that, that have been done controlling for other factors present in the crime have shown over and over that you are more likely to receive the death penalty for killing a white person than killing a black person. In other words, our system as a whole is making a statement about the relative value of lives uh, based on their race. Mm -hmm. uh, and th th numerous studies have confirmed this. Um, the Supreme Court has acknowledged the validity of a study uh, called the Baldus study in a, in a case called McCluskey. Um, so uh, one, one anecdote you, you mentioned, I try to back up the statistics, not only with anecdotes. So in 1991, uh, Donald Peewee Gaskins, a serial killer, was executed by the state of South Carolina. And his execution made headlines, but not because he was a serial killer, but because he was the first person in the first white person in 47 years executed for killing a black person. Let me say that again. In 1991, Donald Gaskins was the first white person in 47 years executed for killing a black person, 1,700 executions over those 47 years, and not a single white person for killing a black person. Um, it, this, is a, this is a real um, uh, injustice in our administration of the death penalty. And so you can believe, as I do, that scripture authorizes the state to administer the death penalty, but scripture says more than just that the death penalty is permitted. Paul says more than that the state bears the sword. Moses says more than that, uh, that he who sheds life by man shall his blood be shed. We should keep reading. And we're also told that God's justice is impartial. Uh, partiality in justice is deciding cases based on personalities rather than on the acts committed. And, and executing people based on personalities of the victim, uh, racial features or ethnic features is partiality, which God hates. Um, and that's just one, one example. Um, and there are others I discuss in the book about the way we pick juries, um, for example. 
uh, and how race still continues to play a, a factor in how we pick juries. Um, but the reality is there are still racial components of our justice system, even today, that we as Christians should want to see eradicated. Yeah, it is really moving. Uh, again, following you on Twitter and reading the book, um, the you often highlight situations of the death penalty and um, those who were deemed innocent after they were executed or, thank God, uh, found to be innocent prior to execution. But it does seem to be a systemic issue in our justice system that we're not carrying out the death penalty in a just way. And we who are pro-life should certainly be passionate about that. And yet I feel like many conservative Christians tend to be, um, you know, let's be tough on crime. We do need the death penalty. Let's not come, you know, move away from that. Let's move toward that. Um, can you unpack that a little bit? Just help yeah. us think about that a little bit as Christians. Yeah. So again, I, I recognize and, um, and re recognize that scripture authorizes the death penalty. Um, I, one of the most, uh, I've read, I read some compelling cases made for that from scripture. Um, as I was working on my book, I include them in footnotes. Uh, there's some really, some, some, really powerful works in that respect. I don't accept the notion that God doesn't authorize us to take life, whether in war or in criminal justice, but there are constraints around that. And since the modern death penalty was instituted, so when people talk about the modern death penalty, they're talking about since 1972. In 1972, the Supreme Court struck down the death penalty as unconstitutional and states made changes and it was reinstituted in late 72 and early 73. And since then, just short of 9,000 people have been sentenced to death in the United States. I think it's like 8,950 some. Um, and of those, 194 have been subsequently exonerated at times after spending decades in prison. So 194 of just short of 9,000 is about 2.2%. Uh, so I just use this example for folks. I recently flew um, out to San Francisco and back uh, to give a talk at Stanford Law School. And I said, when I got on the plane, I did so believing there was a 100% chance I was landing in San Francisco. If, if while waiting in the waiting area, the, the man or woman at the desk had come on the public address system and said, we're boarding now. And I want to assure you that this, plan, this plane lands 97.8% of the time. Uh, I would not have boarded that plane. 97.8% uh, chance when I could die is not going to cut it. And yet the reality is we board our fellow citizens on that plane through our, through our death penalty system. We're willing to put them at risk in a way that we're uh, for risks we wouldn't be willing to take. Uh, we put our neighbors uh, at risk in a way we wouldn't put ourselves at risk. We quite literally do not love our neighbors as ourselves when we operate a system that has that degree of inaccuracy. Now that 2.2% is the ones we know about. Those are the ones who we have, have been exonerated after having been convicted. When I say exonerated, just so your listeners know, I'm not talking about people whose convictions got reversed because of legal errors. I'm talking about people who we later concluded didn't do it, didn't commit the crime for which they were sentenced to death. And, and, and on average, it takes about 15 years for one of those exonerations to occur. And not everyone has, who's been sentenced to death has been on death row for 15 years. And so a study done by the National Academy of Sciences 
um, and published um, by them estimates that about 4%, based on the exonerations we do know, the 2.2%, we can estimate that about 4% of people sentenced to death are actually innocent, one out of every 25. And that we, and that it is almost statistically certain that we have executed people who are innocent. Gosh, Matt, it is really shocking. And um, your book provides so many, so much more that is really helpful. I mean, I think of all the things we can't talk about because of time, but you know, qualified immunity, um, and you know, prosecutors withholding evidence that would allow defendants to be deemed innocent. There's so many systemic issues that you cover in the book. And it's, it's really, truly eye-opening. Um, I hope that people will grab it and read it because we, we need to know better. As you say, the power is in our hands through elections. And we have empowered the state to behave in this way. And it really isn't okay. Um, for, the, for the one listening who is moved to take action, can you give us a few, just starting right here, right now with what we have, what are a few things that we could do today to start to uh, care more and do more when it comes to our justice system? Well, I was talking to a woman at my church just this week who was reading the book, and she said that one of the things that really moved her was just my encouragement to talk to your kids about issues of justice. You know, the way that we talk about this with our children, educating them about what God says about justice, what about how our system operates. I mean, I talk about in in my book about discussions I had with my son uh, about this topic that... Uh, kids, my kids, uh, my son in particular, can view history as boring or civics as boring. Um, We study these things because we as Americans have a responsibility. We have, we're empowered to vote, as I talked about earlier. And so we need to understand how our system works. And so just talking to our kids, for example, about uh, what God says about justice, that God cares about accuracy. We see that in the story of Genesis 18, where God negotiating with Abram over the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God cares about accuracy. When Abram said, will you, will you destroy a whole city of wickedness if doing so would, impl- would kill 10 innocent people? God says, I won't do that. You know, that's just a story we can talk to our kids about, that God cares about accuracy when it comes to justice. We can talk about with our kids about Proverbs, where it says, he who's first in his own cause seems just, and then his neighbor comes and searches him out. That's a discussion of due process, that because we're fallible, we have to go through a process of testing evidence in order to make accurate decisions. We can we can talk to our kids about these very simple concepts um, that I think that even young children can grasp, and certainly teenagers, and maybe that's a great dinner conversation for you Um, or some of your listeners with their kids even tonight to talk about what God's justice looks like, that when God says he's impartial, uh, God cares about that we decide cases on facts and that we not favor the wealthy or disfavor the poor. Uh, There's just, there's, God cares that our punishments are proportional. When he says an eye for an eye, we don't get to take two eyes or two eyes in an ear for, for someone who does an a one eye wrong. Um, that God cares that our that our punishments are consistent with the seriousness of the crime, both not too severe and also not too lenient. All of these are things that you could talk to any any parent uh, who don't, doesn't need to be a seminary degree uh, could talk to their kids about. I think that that's a great thing to teach our kids and to teach them also about how the system uh, operates. Another thing I say to people is. The most common question I get from other Christians as a lawyer is, how do I get out of jury duty? <laughs> and I'm, 
And I want to say, don't get out. I mean, I understand the impulse, you know, it's a headache, you know, I'm going to miss a week of work or two weeks of, you know, the kids' soccer games. Listen, it's going to be an inconvenience for anybody who has to serve on jury duty. But our founders fought for that right for us. Um, Thomas Jefferson talks about it's one of the greatest checks ever invented on on government abuse. I talked earlier about unanimous juries. And I talked earlier about the number of people who've been falsely convicted of tri- at trial of the of the 3,300 who've been falsely convicted. You back out the number of guilty pleas, like 2,400 people have been convicted at trial wrongly. One juror in a country with unanimous jury verdicts, one juror could have stopped that. One juror who said, I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to demand accuracy. I'm going to judge this impartially. Uh, I'm going to insist on, I'm going to consider the testing of the evidence, not just believe what the prosecutor says, or even believe what the defense attorney says. I'm going to, I'm going to, I believe in the process of testing evidence because God says everybody sounds good until his neighbor comes and searches him out. I want to hear both sides. Like just someone committed to those principles sitting on that jury could have stopped these injustices. Just one of one person. I don't need 12 because with a unanimous jury verdict, it requires only one person to stop a wrongful conviction. And so don't, don't, as a Christian, try to get out of jury service. View it as a stewardship that you, unique among most people who've ever lived in this world, and even most people who live in this world today, have a chance to participate in administering God's justice. All authority comes from God. And when you swear an oath as a juror, you're acting as a minister, literally the Greek word, a deacon of God uh, to administer his justice in his way. And every one of us gets virtually in this country, gets to participate in that if we want to. Um, And so I encourage people, take that seriously. Show up um, and administer God's justice, whether that's uh, finding a wrongdoer guilty and providing, thus providing relief to a victim and discipline for a wrongdoer, or finding someone wrongly accused innocent and protecting against a wrongful conviction. We can, we get the chance, the, the opportunity, the stewardship to participate in that as Americans. Yeah, that is really good. When I uh, finished your book uh, a few weeks back, we I actually had a friend, a brother in my own church who was called up for jury duty literally the day I finished your book. And he was texting with my husband, oh man, I've been called into jury duty. I just started taking photos of the pages where you talk about jury duty and just sending them by text to this brother. And uh, and by the end of our text conversation, he was excited to go in to jury duty the next day. And, uh, and he happily served. He actually was initially selected and then not. So he didn't yeah. get to actually carry it out. But um, there's a mind right there, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And listen, my experience has been usually when I finish a trial, I get a chance to talk to the jurors. When I was a prosecutor, we'd get a chance to talk to the jurors. And listen, when I'm picking a jury, I've never met anybody who wants to be there. Like everybody's trying to get off, you know, get off the jury. Uh, but my experience has been, I would say almost 100% of the time is when I talk to jurors afterwards, they really are glad they did it. Yes, it was a headache. They had to find daycare and find someone to, to deal with you know, issues they were facing. And I understand that. But people, I think, look back at that experience and are proud both of what, how our system operates and how they saw it operate mm-hmm. um, and also felt the responsibility and honor of participating in our system of government. So um, I, I think while 
I understand the reluctance. I really encourage Christians take part in that and then do God's justice. Yeah. I was actually on a jury, um, maybe 23 years ago, um, for a homicide and, Mm. um, the victim was, um, an impoverished immigrant woman whose life was taken by, um, a man who was driving under the influence. Mm. And, um, it was actually a really good experience. As you just said, it was, um, truly, I truly enjoyed it is a weird thing to say because obviously someone lost their life, but I did have so much respect for the way our our justice system carried it out, which, um, you know, I I feel like that time in my own limited experience, we got it right, which makes it that much more horrifying to hear about the um, vast uh, numbers of when we, we get it wrong or we are flippant with fellow image bearers with our, the neighbor, our own neighbors in this country where we just say, you know what, 2% is not that big a deal. Let them board the plane. Um, and how that is just truly abhorrent when we stop to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's so true. And, and part of the reason I'm, as people will see in the book, I'm so opposed to our plea bargaining system is because I think there's so much wisdom in the common men and women of the jury. Like, I really believe that about, about my fellow Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, G.K. Chesterton has a great quote in a book he writes about the justice system where he says, when it comes to doing something really important, we don't use professionals. We use 12 random people off the street. Mm-hmm. And, and I love that. He's so right because what he says is the danger with professionals is that over time, they just see the same person in the same place the usual guy in the usual spot. And in other words, people can become cynical and jaded and dismissive, not because of malice, but just because when you do that day in and day out, that's what happens to us. And, and he says, I think so well, when we do this really important things, we just go get 12 random people and we trust their wisdom. And, and my experience has been the juries do fantastic jobs, obviously not imperfect, um, but I, I really want us to see that to administer justice more by trials and less by plea bargains, because I think it's it's good for our, our citizens to participate in it. I think it's an important check on abuses of the state. And I trust the wisdom of common people. Yeah, that's good. Well, Matt, I am so encouraged by your book um, and, and the answer that you gave, you know, the way that we think about um, both victims and the perhaps defendants, um, the way that we talk about them, especially as believers, the way that we chat around our dinner table really matters. Voting matters, going on, out for jury duty matters. All of these things do play a role and we are not helpless in the face of all of this. So thank you for um, sharing your combined wisdom when it comes to the justice system as well as theology. Any you know final parting words that you want to leave with listeners or any last minute exhortations before we close out? Absolutely. I, I, I always want to end with this. There's, there's probably people listening to your show who have suffered injustice at the hands of the justice system, maybe wrongly convicted, but maybe victimized by crime. And it was never, it was never made right fully, or there was a conviction, but they're still suffering the lingering traumatic effects. And for those folks, I want to offer the encouragement that our hope is never in this earth's justice system. I'm passionate about seeing us strive for more justice, but as Christians, we have for nearly 2000 years around the world confessed each Sunday what our hope is. And it is this, he will come again in glory 
to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. That our hope is that in the end, God will make all things right. We cannot restore the years that the locusts have eaten, but he can and he will. And so I just want to encourage people with that hope, the Christian hope, that God will make it right one day. Uh, no murderer, no corrupt judge, no rogue police officer, no abuser has the final word. Amen. And that is why we can carry on. We can we can carry on in confidence knowing that it's not on our shoulders, it's on the Lord's. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you for the grace and the truth that you have shared with us. I will be linking how to keep in touch with you in the show notes as well as your book. And so to the listener, please grab hold of those helpful resources. All right, take care. Hey, thanks so much for listening to All Things, where we look at current events and cultural trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now.